Hi, welcome again to The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I'd like to share with you today a book by Natasha Crane. Now, she's got three books out. And by the way, I'm so glad women are now really getting into the apologetics field in a big way, and they have some wonderful things to say. And uh, it's, I don't know, it's always been seen as a man's field or something. That's not right, and that's certainly something we're all supposed to be involved with, making a case for the truth of Christianity. So I'm very happy to have some excellent women writers coming alongside and doing uh, super jobs. So Natasha Crane has um, three other books out. I've uh, done one of her books in the past, but three books especially aimed for parents. Uh, I want to do the first one today. It's called Keeping Your Kids on God's Side. And she's got Talking With Your Kids About God. And a third book called Talking With Your Kids About Jesus. So you can see these are all uh, aimed at Christian parents. And then uh, she's branched off from that. But I think about this first book. It was so popular. Uh, Nancy Piercy. I admire a lot of the, the work that Nancy does. She said, I almost wish my children were young again so I could use Natasha Crane's book with them. Uh, and the, on the back cover, it says, empower your kids to respond well to the hard questions that threaten their faith. I don't think there's ever been a time where things have been so threatening to kids as far as their Christian faith. So I'm glad she's uh, writing things like this. So let's take a look at this book, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side. This is her first book. Let me just give you kind of a quick rundown of what some other people have said about it. For example, J. Warner Wallace, and uh, I love his work. What a great guy. He said it's an important, eye-opening, gateway book. She's quickly introducing important issues and evidences from the perspective of a parent. And uh, Sean McDowell said it's a timely and much-needed book. Brett Kunkel, I uh, like the work Brett Kunkel does, said parents wake up. The secular culture is challenging our kids like never before. And it says uh, keeping your kids on God's side is the resource we all need. So here's how the book is organized. She says, conversations about God, that's part one. Conversations about truth and worldviews. Third part, conversations about Jesus. Fourth part, conversations about the Bible. And then the last part, conversations about science. And so she gives tips in here, and uh, it's just wonderful what you need, uh, what your kids will need for a confident faith. That's how she starts. And then she just deals with questions that uh, the kids are going to raise. Or a parent can raise it first and, and talk to a child about it. Things like, uh, let's just take conversations about God. What evidence is there for God's existence? How could a good God allow evil and suffering? How can a loving God send people to hell? Why would God need people to worship him? Why is he so hidden? So, <clears throat> so each of these areas has some excellent questions that kids are going to come up with, and we need to have the answers for them. I thought maybe what I would go to is the fourth section, what talks about conversations with the Bible, and chapter 25, or her 25th question is, how are the books of the Bible selected? And so, you know, that's a, a key thing, isn't it? Uh, how do we know that we should trust the Bible? Well, first question is, how, how do we get the books? How do we get the canon? The canon just means a standard. And the Old Testament um, canon was 39, Protestant canon, and 27 New Testament books. And she says that uh, both the Old and New Testaments have very different canonization histories. And so this chapter, she focuses just on the New Testament. I thought I would just do that and talk about that one. 
And she starts with what the skeptics say, which I think is really important. Instead of just saying to kids, here's what you ought to believe. It's like, well, wait a minute, here's what you're going to hear before you can tell them what you ought to believe. So it said, uh, here are some of the, the popular skeptical views. So something like this. Hey, in the first centuries after Jesus, there were a lot of rival versions of Christianity, but those got suppressed. You know, the winners got to choose. And it was the, the winners that uh, were selected to be in the New Testament. And But here's, here's the bad news. They weren't picked until like 300 years after Jesus' death. And they only won because they got political favor at the time. And that kind of view is so popular today, primarily because of one person, Bart Ehrman. And so she references his book called Lost Scriptures, books that did not make it into the New Testament. And she has a quote from him. I think it's worth reading the quote because this is, uh, this is what the kids today are going to run up against. Ehrman says, The victors in the struggle to establish Christian orthodoxy not only won their theological battles, they also rewrote the history of the conflict. Later readers then naturally assume that the victorious views have been embraced by the vast majority of Christians from the very beginning, all the way back to Jesus and his closest followers, the apostles. Well, that's something we ought to be a little nervous about. So, what are we going to do? She said, well, it's true. There were a lot of books written about Christianity in the first centuries after Jesus, about 280. And it's true that the 27 books that we have in our New Testament weren't officially recognized as canon until AD 393. But she says, obviously, here's the key question. Which of all these writings tell us the truth about the faith taught by the apostles, the people who actually knew Jesus? She says, let's look at the early historical consensus of church fathers, um, that they had four categories of books. One, books that they all accepted, everybody accepted. Two, books accepted by most, but not all. Three, books that were accepted by a few, and then books rejected by all. So there are the four categories. Number one, everybody accepted those books. Number two, books that a lot of people accepted. Three, books accepted by some. Four books that nobody accepted. She says our New Testament books, the ones that we have in our New Testament, only those books, they fall into the first two categories. Okay, so that's good. Right? They're accepted by all, they're accepted by most. Now she says the process of recognizing something as scripture started really early in the life of the church. So she gives some examples like in First Timothy 5, Paul quotes from Luke and calls that part of scripture. And the same thing happens in the book of Second Peter. The author Peter refers to in Paul's letters as scripture. That's in uh, for Second uh, Peter three, and it says other verses show the New Testament writings were already being collected and circulated among churches even during the time of the apostles were alive. And she gives references. She doesn't quote them, but references to Colossians four sixteen and Revelation one three. And so she talks then about the church fathers those that were in the first half of the second century, so from like 100 to 150 AD, she said they quoted extensively and they alluded to almost all of the New Testament books that we have. They, they quoted and they alluded to them in their writings. That's a stamp of approval. I mean, they had contact with the apostles that they lived just after them. So the early church fathers probably didn't compile a formal list of accepted books. There wasn't a need 
So it's true that you don't find somebody in 100 AD saying these are the books of the New Testament, bam, 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 bam. She says, but by the middle of the second century, a couple of heresies came along, coming up from a you know, different doctrine from the apostles. And so then the church fathers had to say, okay, well, this is what Christians should be reading. So here's the first heresy, man named Marcion. He rejected the Old Testament. He denied that Jesus even came in the flesh. So he, because of his view, he said, here are the books you ought to read. And that included some of Paul's letters and kind of an edited version of Luke. So he's the first person who did publish a fixed collection of some New Testament books. Then there was this movement called Gnosticism. Gnosis is to know. And they believed that only spirit and soul are good. And that Jesus only appeared to be human and you had to have special knowledge. And that's how you gain salvation. So what happened was these deviations or these heresies, whatever you want to call them, these deviations made the canon start to take shape because Christian fathers said, nope, you know, this isn't the case. These are the books. And so for the next 200 years, Christian literature exploded and we could begin to read about what debates were going on as far as what books were considered authoritative. So she gives a little short history here. There was a Muratorian fragment came out in 180 AD. So you're talking you know, pretty early. And it gave a list of books that were recognized as authoritative in the late second century. It listed 22 of the books we had today. So it's very close. So what books didn't make it? Hebrews was not in there. James was not in there. First and second Peter, third John, they were not in there. But that's pretty close, isn't it? To be 22 out of your 27. That's pretty close. Um, then Irenaeus, 180 AD. Now, what's cool about Irenaeus is that he was a student of somebody named Polycarp. Polycarp was a student and knew the Apostle John. So you're talking only one person removed from the Apostle John. He appealed to the same writings that were in that Muratorium fragment. Now, he included 1 Peter, so his really has 23 books. Then you have Tertullian. He's 207. Now, he was an early apologist defending the faith. And uh, he acknowledged the four Gospels. He said, that's it. Now, the only books that he rejected were Second Peter, James, Second and Third John. And he actually used the term New Testament. Then he had a man named Origen, early third century. He distinguished three categories of books, things like ones that were widely acknowledged, some disputed, and some rejected. The ones that he said were widely acknowledged were the four Gospels, Acts, all of Paul's letters, every one. 1 Peter, 1 John, Revelation. Now, this is 3rd century, early, so we're talking 200s, early 200s. Now, the disputed books would be for him Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2nd and 3rd John. You know, 2nd and 3rd John have popped up quite a bit in 2nd Peter. All right, then Athanasius, who's 367 AD, he named the 27 books. He said, here are the ones that are the, the authoritative books, so the same that we have today. Then finally, in 393, so we're moving through time, in 393, there was a council that formally ratified the 27 books we have right now. So now she says, all right, let's summarize this quickly. 20 of the 27 New Testament books were accepted from the very beginning, never in dispute. 20 of the 27. So what were the books? We've gone through them individually, authors and, and uh 
and apologists. What, what were the books that were outside of this totally accepted? Some of the question ones, they were Hebrews, James, Second Peter, Second and Third John, Jude, and Revelation. So then you kind of wonder, well, so well, what was the problem? Uh, was there some heresy in them or what? So let's go through these. She does. So Natasha Crane says this, let's take Hebrews. Well, not that the book's teaching was bad, but there was no author identified. So people were a little concerned about the authority. And what won people over, what made them decide it's okay, was generally, most people believed it was Paul or one of his disciples. So it seemed to have the apostolic authority that you would need to be accepted. Okay, so Hebrews comes into the canon. What about James? Well, it kept emphasizing good works. And so some people are really concerned because Paul kept saying it's salvation by grace apart from works. But then as people read it and read it and thought about it, it was determined that it was compatible with Paul's teachings. Now, she doesn't explain it here, but I've, what I've heard, which makes sense to me, is that James says what you do with your faith after you've been saved and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you go out and you do things. You do it in response out of love for what God did for you. And so Paul is talking about you come to faith, you come to Christ through uh, just grace, right? You don't have to do anything. But because you're saved, then you, you work, according to James, you do good works. What about Second Peter? What was the problem there? Well, there's a different style between the two different uh, books, First and Second Peter. So some people wondered about the authenticity. But look, people ever since then have said, yeah, but if you use a scribe rather than writing yourself, you can end up with a different different style, and, and sometimes it's the topic that's being discussed or the recipient. So people have overcome that and said, no, that's really part of Peter's writing. So first and second Peter are okay. What about second and third John? They didn't circulate as much. People didn't didn't see them. They didn't. They said, what are these letters? They hadn't been, uh, you know, among their culture and in their city and in their part of the the world. So they were anonymous. And they had limited circulation, but later they said, yeah, it's, it's the work of John. How about Jude? Well, a, a few people are a little concerned because there's a quote in Jude 14 to something that's a non-biblical source, the book of Enoch. But early church fathers said, no, it's, it's valid. And so it became part of the canon. And then there's a revelation. Well, the concerns weren't really raised until the 300s. There's a heretical group called them. Um, Montanists, and they tied their doctrine to it. And so it's like, well, wait a minute, if there's a heretical group that's going for it, maybe we shouldn't. But key church leaders came to its defense, and so its place in the canon was confirmed. So this is where she has landed on her information here. And uh, I think this is a, a tremendous book, a tremendous resource for parents. One more time, Natasha Crane's the author, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side. Later, uh, in future podcasts, I want to do her other two books, Talking With Your Kids About God and Talking With Your Kids About Jesus. These are so important. I just can't stress that enough. I don't want us to lose the next generation. And we've got statistics that say something like three out of four people, once they reach 18, they head off to college or start a job or whatever, they walk away from the faith. Three out of four. Now, some of them will probably come back after they start raising kids or they marry somebody who thinks it's a good idea to get back to church. So, okay, that's great. But that's, that's kind of sad, isn't it? Three out of four. 
that doesn't have to be that way. A lot of kids had questions that never got answered. They had parents that were too busy doing other things and didn't spend time with them. But these are such wonderful books. We got them for our kids to give to their kids or to talk to their kids. So I hope you consider getting them if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent. Actually, if you just want to learn some of this material yourself, there's plenty of good material in here to, to go through. I, I enjoy just reading them. Uh, but anyway, valuable books. I'm so glad for Natasha Crane. Please consider uh, some of her work. She's also got a blog and um, a website and all that kind of good stuff. So please get involved with Natasha Crane's work. Uh, she's got, there's a website, uh, christianmomthoughts.com. So uh, Natasha Crane, now that's C-R-A-I-N. Please consider reading her some of the material and, and passing her work on. Thanks. Talk to you next time.